So welcome, everybody. Thanks for hopping on the Moneyball Manager podcast. This is Tim Dillon with Pilot. And today, uh, uh, joined by Doug Johnson, uh, our founder at Copilot. Doug, how are you doing? Pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. I'm rested. This is sort of week two of having a puppy, so I think this puppy is sleeping through most of the night, so I feel pretty darn good. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, well, Chris, we're, uh, we're, we're super happy to have you on here. Um, we're, we're thankful you could join us. And I know you've had kind of an interesting path into sales. That's sort of where I'd like to start off if we could. Um, it's what you know, I, I would call probably maybe a little bit of a, maybe a nonlinear path into sales, but my hunch is that that path into it has probably helped shape a lot of your approach that maybe you've developed over, uh, over the last few years and probably implemented the last few years. So can you maybe take us through, uh, your career a little bit and kind of where you started off and, and how you got into sales today? Sure. So you know, and it's funny because now looking back and having talked to all these people that I've met in sales leadership and salespeople, it seems like like no one grows up thinking they're going to be in sales, <laughs> but they find themselves in it. And um, I thought I was always alone in that regard, having taken a nonlinear path. But it seems like there's a lot more people than I thought um, that has similar pattern uh, stories. Um, my story is after college, um, where I thought I, I went to school to do, to get into foreign policy for, to getting into diplomacy, but somehow I landed a job at a strategy and management consulting firm advising the commercial go-to-market strategy for, um, the pharma and the biotech clients. And that was back in Boston. And, um, you know, it's funny, like right around the time everyone's talking about B schools and, you know, um, taking a break from consulting, doing something else. There was a small startup out of the MIT Media Lab that was mixing, you know, digital healthcare, the concepts in digital healthcare back then, still pretty early, mental health, machine learning, and natural language processing. You put it together, trying to change the world of how mental health is delivered. And they were looking for someone in the capacity of like an analyst to support the head of sales back then and the CEO. And it was an opportunity for me to leave Boston and it's cold winters and uh, come to San Francisco. Um, within six months, had to they had to let a lot of people go and in, including the head of sales and, you know, Key reason is there was no product market fit, right? Uh, the CEO sat me down and says, hey, you're young, uh, relatively, and um, you're okay smart. I am really smart. <laughs> I'm like PhD at MIT smart. You're not that smart, but you're smart. If you help us find the first revenue generating contract here, we could pay you like a head of sales. And I was young enough. I was married. Um, seemed like an interesting enough opportunity. Seemed like what you know the dreams in startup world are made of. So I, I took the chance, and I think it was a, a whirlwind of nearly four years we spent literally building up the go to market from scratch, going from zero to one, and was able to bring on you know the first one million dollar ARR, two million dollar ARR, and sooner or later we had thirty two enterprise clients and. I was in Canada uh, setting up our first, you know, international customer up there. Uh, we deployed uh, overseas in Germany, in the, in the UK, in Australia, and so forth. And 
um, as of a couple of weeks ago, they've had a, a major exit. Uh, uh, you know, if you guys are fans of Silicon Valley, um, a, a triple comma exit, if you will, from a valuation perspective. And so it was a bit surreal to think that something that I just started thinking, I'm going to take a bet on this idea and this team. And it became something that's worth um, so much value uh, along the way. But that was my foray into sales. And then I was fun, you know, taking a company that's really early stage to a point where you can afford to have a team of salespeople. And I, I literally like didn't mean to get into sales. So a lot of that was just, just learning on the job, really, uh, just on my feed and had the help of a lot of great mentors from the VCs and so forth. But after that, I, I went to a company, Doug, you said, uh, you mentioned before our recording that you have some background in smart manufacturing. I went to a company that was mixing this time software with smart manufacturing. And it was just um, do what you just did at this one company, but do it better, do it at a bigger scale with a bigger team. And for what is arguably a little bit more complex motion than building an enterprise SaaS motion in digital healthcare. So uh, I, I went to do that and scale the team 5X. Um, you know, we started out with four people. And by the time I exited, there were 11 people. I had second line management responsibilities in some parts of the org, uh, of the revenue org. I had a, a team of seven AEs and so forth. So um, that was an interesting experience. Like the set, because for me, that was more of scaling a company uh, really fast as opposed to going zero to one. And between those two, two startups and consulting, you know, after about 10 years of having gone, gone through that motion, I felt like I needed to be at a place that's a little bit less like a startup world. <laughs> and so, but it's still exciting, right? From, a, uh, from being able to be a part of a high potential, high growth team. So that's what brought me to Twilio. But um, yeah, I, I never meant to go in sales in the first place. Chris, I, I am so excited to hear your story and a little bit jealous. Um, you know, I, I think you clearly at, is it okay if I mention the name of the first company or you just yes, wait yes, yeah. for sure, go for it. You, you know, I, I met that CEO probably four years before he started that. He was, uh, he was from the area that I live in and he had like one of his sales heads of sales was trying to reach out and sell us on their software product or their advertising product at the time prior to it. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I met him a couple times in person, nice guy, you know, like it was a nice guy. And I was always following him after that, you know, just observing after the exit and his first exit. And yeah, I was excited of Ginger's opportunity, right? Because I, I can very much appreciate the uh, mission, the vision, the intention of it. And to, to hear now the story that the role that you played, I just, I, first off, thank you because I know the impact that you had is is big not only in the first level of impact but beyond that right and the families of people that were impacted so um that's just me speaking from the heart i, I appreciate you for doing that and it is very interesting for me to hear uh and not a lot of people probably would have picked this up on this is that your experience at ginger then parlaying that or leveraging it or or doing a similar thing at um at tempo when you're doing like PCB automation like that, that is an interesting thing that not a lot of people would have felt comfortable um, 
transitioning into because it's not exactly the same, right? You did have to learn a hell of a lot around a different industry. And that's an interesting sort of journey. And, and now you're at Twilio, you know, it's, it's a interesting journey. So thanks for letting, letting us know about that. No, and, and great that you have the context to appreciate both and, and the, the juxtaposition of both. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I grew up in manufacturing. I'm an engineer by education and I started working out on like PCB boards and uh, oh wow, like automatic welding, uh, not automatic, uh, sorry, uh, soldering stations and uh, solder baths and all that stuff. So I am, I'm intimately aware of PCB <laughs> development <laughs> and how challenging it can be for an electrical engineer to do that. And then also manufacturing to manufacture it without uh, sort of the issues that stem from um, sort of the manufacturing of it. Totally. Sorry, so, sorry, Tim. I just, we just, uh, I just nerded out a little bit. Yeah, no, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Um, and it is good that you have that kind of perspective. Certainly, it's and it's which is different than mine. Which is it's great that you're on this call, Doug. But um, Chris, let me ask you something because and this and you tell me if I'm you know close or way off base. But so you kind of started off in in, in consulting and effectively kind of advising executives, advising heads of sales, and then they put you in the seat, so to speak, and said, "All right, you know, we'd like to see you do it." Was going from, you know, um, uh, that kind of consulting background where you're kind of saying, Hey, I, th- I think this is what you you know need to do, or I think this is the, the approach you should take to then actually having to go, you know, execute on it and do it yourself as a head of sales. Did it give you the opportunity to maybe kind of pressure test some of the things that you, uh, you, you maybe would advise, uh, a head of sales to do, and then give you the opportunity to then, um, you know, pressure test that and put it into practice. And is that, is that close to maybe what, what that experience was like, or am I way off? No, no, it's, it's so funny because I think it sounds so much more eloquent and intentional <laughs> the way you framed how my experience would have been based on the conversation you and I had versus, what I remember feeling or how I remember feeling going through that motion, like it was completely uncomfortable because, you know, in consulting, when you're advising companies that are in, you know, billions of market cap, ton of data around historical sales, and they have had, you know, they they have a sales force, right? And they have a product that is working. They have a brand that uh, their customer base recognizes. They have territories, they have segments, they have, customer journey mapped out. They know what the ICPs are. So like, I think as a consultant, you have the, um, you have the, all of that knowledge helping you. And what you're expected to do is bring on incremental changes that are going to optimize for more profit or better revenue or accelerating the time to revenue. And I think the discomfort that I felt was, being almost feeling like I'm pressured to provide answers when I know there isn't good or clean data to support anything I'm trying to do. So like, I think consulting and careers like that, um, you know, I, I think investment, investment banking, I, I think folks that end up at a venture capital firm, I think people that go into hedge funds, I think people that start their own companies often tend to have a very hypothesis driven um, thinking process. And I, I felt like, Hey, we hired you for that brain, the ability to do that. But by the way, we've never sold this thing before. 
figure it out. Like that's a completely, I don't think it's even like, oh yeah, let me go execute a strategy that I advise a fortune hundred company on. Like it was, it just felt like pure discomfort um, is what I remember. But I think, I thank you for putting it a lot more eloquently than what the experience felt like back then. And, and, for sure. And, yeah. And by the way, a lot of the questions are existential questions, right? Like I remember the first time we made a uh, pivot from a product market fit perspective, right? Whereas before we were trying to position this, um, and, and, you know, Doug, seems like you have some background here, um, position this as a software augmentation to healthcare providers and hospitals should buy it because it's going to help bring um, a level of remote connectivity when the patient goes home. Um, from seeing their psychiatrist or therapist at the hospital. But um, hospital CEOs didn't like that. Uh, U.S. is still predominantly a, a fee-for-service system in which they make money the more you come in. As much as there's a lot of talks and improvements and progress made in uh, value-based care, back then, back then it wasn't. Um, so we made a pivot to one where we became the provider using our own um, software and using our own AI and, and that pedigree. And selling it like you would sell um, medical benefits to big corporations, right? So it's paid on a per employee or per person per month basis uh, on a subscription basis. And we've never done it. And I was asked by the CEO and the board back then to say, okay, can you forecast this out? Like what's the low, medium, high on how much we could uh, rake in ARR over the course of next 18, 20 months. I'm like, Guys, we have one pilot with a 200-person company that just signed up for three months, and we didn't know how to price this. So we, I just put together something that feels like would work. <laughs> and now I'm being asked to uh, forecast how much we could make or how soon we could get to 1 million ARR, which back then, like uh, today in uh, startup land, that's like a, a chump change, right? But uh, back then, that that was like a pretty important milestone for early stage startups trying to do SaaS in um, digital healthcare to hit. So yeah, I, I remember long story short, it was a lot of discomfort making that transition. <laughs> I imagine, I imagine it was. And I mean, you made a, um, you made an important point. In fact, it's a good, it's a good, uh, you know, probably even segue to, to some of the kind of topics I wanted to ask you about today is, is one of them is just frankly being like forecasting, right? You know, a lot of the folks that we talk to, they consistently say, Hey, look like a company without any kind of historical data. I mean, like it's almost impossible to like to, to forecast or have any kind of like accurate forecast. I mean, how, how tough was that? Or how, how, what sort of things did you learn maybe early on to help inform, um, you know, your ability to forecast at a company that really was just like, just truly getting out of the gates. I mean, what was forecasting like back then without any data? Yeah, no, I think I started building comfort around it. The moment I realized, like, I think it was Steve Jobs that said that um, the people that build things around the world that you live in are no smarter than you are. And, and, and the moment of truth for me was when I saw you know, because you, you get access to a lot of mentors working at uh, venture-backed startups. And I was in the room with them and they would ask me all these questions like, well, tell me about like how this is sized, right? What's the, 
What would you say might be an average sales value if we go for 10 more accounts, like the first one that signed the pilot? And I was like, well, like if that's the case, I think it could be you know, $1,000 a month potentially um, based on employee size of you know 200 and we charge, I don't know, five bucks a month. Um, wait, did I do that math right? <laughs> what did I say? Um, it was like $5,000 a month. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, and, and, then, and then I realized it's nothing more than being able to have a pretty good handle on a hypothesis that is stitched together through a bunch of assumptions about the, the bottom up math, right? So if it, cause we were selling to companies, right? Okay. How many companies are there in the world? It's, it's the moment I realized it's very similar to the kind of like, um, modeling or thought exercises that they have you do in consulting interviews, I started understanding forecast as it's a sequence and a series of hypotheses and assumptions and having some data for you to be able to bookend. Okay. At minimum, it could be this at maximum. It could be uh, that, um, you know, another number, but you are able to quantify exactly where it might be in the middle based on your understanding of where the customer is and ability to quantify risks and potential levers we could pull. The moment I understood like that answer is an acceptable answer and they're not looking at me to be a profit. I started becoming more comfortable with the process of having to forecast subsequently bigger and bigger numbers. That's interesting. Let me ask you this, as you kind of began to hone if you will, sort of your forecasting uh, chops. It does sound like you went at least from you know one industry uh, at Ginger into a completely different one at Tempo. I mean, was it was there anything you kind of like learned in terms of like your you know your forecasting process that you were able to kind of take to the new role when you went into a totally different market? I mean, um, or or did you find that yeah it was it was it was pretty similar just you know, again, they were looking for kind of these basic, uh, these basic things. And once you kind of have that down, you're able to do it pretty accurately. I think at Ginger, it was more the kind of forecasting you would do for enterprise SaaS that's more seat based because the math that we had to figure out is like, which industries have more inclination to purchase mental health and better behavioral health for their employees now. Right. And once you figure that out, you figure out what size companies. So it's, you know, 100 person companies, 1,000 person companies, 1,000 to 5,000, and then 5,000, 10,000, 10,000 plus. That's how you would look at the market. And your ability to forecast is some function of take the employee size times uh, the price we might be looking at for that segment times 12 as the average, uh, excuse me, the annual run rate of what that account might be worth um, from an ARR perspective. And, you know, the total contract value, obviously, two-year, three-year, one-year contracts and go from there. It's actually tempo that I think helped me evolve my forecasting to be less bottom-up. And here's why, right? Um, Doug, you probably know this. Like, basically, the business model of tempo was being able to help engineers at companies that are making, I I can't name the, the names, but self-driving cars, reusable rocket uh, launch systems, satellites, you name it, the bleeding edge of hardware tech and being able to help these engineers prototype faster with software automation that makes factories smarter. Like at the 50,000 feet 
30,000 feet. That, that is the business we were in. So it was part hardware, part software sales, but at the core, like the first kind of the linchpin, the toaster we were selling, if you will, to these companies and engineering orgs was selling them the prototype PCBAs, the, the printed circuit board assemblies that they would have to go through multiple iterations of before something becomes a hardware product that you and I would recognize as a, a as a consumer, right? So in that world, you can't just take, oh, hey, uh, a Lockheed Martin is a 20,000 person company. Like you can't just multiply your way out in a, in a same way that an enterprise soft, uh, ex- excuse me, the seat based uh, software sales motion would. So here the challenge was like, how do I know? Like if you look at a car, right. And this is, this was put to me when I first joined the company, they said, you look at a, a Ford focus. Are you able to understand all the subsystems that might have PCBAs? Okay, great. Like, uh, uh, um, let's say it's an electric vehicle. Like, it probably has a battery management system. Okay, battery management system is comprised of the batteries themselves and um, a, a very complex kind of a control module that sits on uh, the PCBAs that are actually taking input signals, giving output signals to the, the battery. Um, and, you know, the battery is getting consumed throughout all the systems in a car. So you really had to take a system-level perspective to it and use that as the guidance for understanding, okay, given the innovative cycles, innovation cycles of this company, how many times would they have to prototype this in the best-case scenario, in the worst-case scenarios? How big is their market? Like, is this, uh, like, uh, you know, Lockheed Martin selling uh, defense military contract, you know, where it's like 10 aircrafts to an allied nation, or is this more of like a consumer volumes, right? They need to ship, um, you know, 300,000 cars this year or so forth. Right. So I think this pushed me in the direction of being able to be more comfortable doing a low, medium, high on forecast and and taking more of a top-down view on being able to forecast accounts where it wasn't just seat-based software sales. It was some element of high volume transactional sales on top of software like contract sales. That makes sense. And I think just being exposed to a different go-to-market motion with different pace helped me understand, like, I can't just be rolling up forecasts bottom up. And, and mind you, like I did not grow up in a Salesforce or I did not grow up in Oracle. So it helped me understand now, I think, pretty generalizable feedback and um, advice around how to forecast by looking at data such as, you know, your average sales price, your pipeline conversion ratios from previous quarters. Like I didn't have access to any of that because a lot of the businesses I were building were you know, either just made a pivot, like in the case of Ginger, and there was no data to support any kind of uh, business metrics, or it was a company that was still early on where there was no sense of predictability with any of the accounts or territories as a whole. You know, that's, that's interesting. I want to, I want to see then how you, how could you, or how did you, um, how did that influence the way you maybe like coached your reps in their forecasting? Like, were there a couple of stops and starts then? Like, yeah, obviously you were building teams at, um, at 
at these companies, right? And you probably had kind of a, a learning curve to your own sort of forecasting. Like, did you find it easy to be able to kind of articulate this to them to make them maybe more accurate in their forecasting once you kind of, you know, once you were able to get a, a good handle on uh, and a good comfort level, did you then find it, you know, easy to coach, easier to coach them on it? Or, or is that always just kind of a moving target? Oh, hundred percent. I think it gave me a lot of confidence and I think it projected a lot of credibility to the salespeople I had a pleasure of working with to see that I've actually done this this way. Right. And I think part of it is because of my consulting background, but when I hire or when I work with my reps, like my number one goal is first and foremost, we got to be a team of really good business people. And how do good business people think? They think through hypothesis-driven frameworks, right? So I, I really try to instill that in every conversation I have, whether it's a new hire on the team or some of the more experienced reps on, on, on the team, even now at Twilio, right? And you got to really take a hypothesis. And like, what if I, if you were in the elevator, right? And, you, you know, some major famous VC, CEO that you respect asks for your opinion on an account in your territory, no matter how unlikely that is, what are the one or two things you're going to say that reflects, that demonstrates that you've really researched into your customer's business that really shows you understand where might be the opportunities for you might be as a salesperson working with that business. And being able to answer that question, I think, unlocks a lot of the stuff that you see online as, hey, here's how you coach your reps to forecast. Here's how you coach your reps to qualify better. Here's how you coach reps to do pipeline management better. Like for me, that's the that's the like the keystone habit, if you will. I think that helps a lot of the other stuff naturally downstream. So yeah, like a, a big part of me having gone through this where I had to be hypothesis driven, right? I couldn't rely on just uh, a, a pre-built motion and brands that existed or go to market. Like I basically built it as I went. And I think that gave a lot of the reps confident, like, hey, in spite of the fact that you took nonlinear path, like I trust what you're saying because at some point you did this yourself to go from zero to one. And I think you'll find that, that like a lot of times it's, it's all about trust building with your reps. And like, I think the most important thing I try to emphasize is I will never ask you to do something that I wouldn't do myself or I have not done myself. Uh, Cause I think for some of the managers, like this is more of a management role where you look at spreadsheets and you try to, you know, get people to do things on time and get asks done. But when you approach it from the uh, perspective of like, I've done this, so can you, and here's the expectation on what good looks like. And here's the expectation on what great looks like. It's your choice, which you go for. I'm here to help. I, I think that totally changes the conversation around what you're asking reps to do forecast or otherwise. Yeah, Chris, the, the one of the, how do I say this? One of the self learnings, uh, things that I've uh, didn't recognize 10 years ago was the value of uh, the sort of general business decision-making, like educating account executives and reps on how executive teams talk, not, you know, like what, what they make decisions on because it just isn't, it is impossible for a frontline sales manager who has never been in a seat 
and I don't say that they have to be in a consulting seat, but who hasn't been, who has never developed an executive summary to, you know, in, in like the 10 different ways that you can communicate an executive summary for various different businesses, it's impossible for a frontline manager then to convey to an individual contributor who's also new how to have certain types of conversations. But that's more just on like conversations and value positioning, et cetera. Also on the, 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 what you're just speaking about, which is uh, gaining alignment and uh, buy-in, if you will, to an approach, you're not actually communicating in that way, which is a, a wonderful way to for, front, for first-time frontline managers to think about. You're not telling them how and like, sorry, you're not telling them the way they have to do it. You're presenting a case, right? You're saying, you, you know, like, here's, here's a situation. Here's what I've done. Here's the reasons that it worked. You can elect to do it your way. I'm just trying to help you understand not only how executives think and make decisions, but also how you might want to approach your uh, an action or an act, a decision that you're going to make. And that transitions the decision making to them. They're just more informed um, uh, prior to making that decision. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that also helps the managers set the boundaries on like, here's what I could help you solve for. Here's what I could help you solve with. Um, and here's where you are expected to solve this on your own, right? You're letting reps solve the problem, but I got your back in case you get stuck or things need to get escalated. So yeah, I, I know I'm taking it a little bit off topic, but yeah, in, in, in the theme of enabling reps to aspire towards higher standards and get to a much better place on from a career perspective, skill set perspective, I hundred percent agree. When when you um, do you in one on ones, whether or not you're you were conducting them yourself or you're working, I think previously you had uh, layers of management in between. I'm not sure if that's the case at at Twilio, but it might be. When you think about isolating, sorry, I don't want to assume. Do you? How do you? And do you isolate certain elements of their sales process to understand if person A or person B uh, needs help in one area versus another? Well, that's a really good question. I think there's two aspects to it, right? I, I think the most important thing I try to accomplish in a one-on-one is understand qualitatively where someone's motivation might be and like week over week, if I had to build a chart in my mind, like visually of how this person, I remember feeling in terms of their motivation, um, week one, week two, week three, how that's changing. And if there's any red flags and any, you know, big pops or big, big drops, but yeah, to your point about like, how do I know who to manage what I think it would boil down to having organization wide metrics, um, and, and I would look at e-leading indicators, right? Like, and, and be able to understand as a sales manager, what correlates best to success and success, you know, it's define it however is appropriate for your business. And because at different stages of the company, you want to optimize for different things. But I think you look at, for instance, like at Tempo, uh, stage conversion and be, um, new opportunity creation week over week was a really, really strong indicator of success for someone being able to hit and um, uh, uh, overachieve on their numbers. So what I would have are, I would boil that down from stage conversion throughout the quarter and what that number 
has to be in order for it to meet the quarterly quota that we give the most senior rep. And then you work backwards to, okay, what does the monthly number have to be in, in terms of uh, the stage conversion and new ops created? What does the weekly have to be? And you have a rolling near real-time dashboard that you could reference at the beginning of your week before 9 a.m. and spot the ones that are off-trend and understand the ones that are on-trend or leading the trend, what their day-to-day looks different. And I think like growing up in sales in the past 10 years, it's, it's not just me, like any of the managers that grew up in sales in the past 10 years have the tremendous benefit of the tools that allow you to track activities, like not from a micromanaging perspective, but for you to have access to data to know how many unique meetings with unique accounts is this account executive touching? And what do those calls sound like? And how many you know tasks are lo- logged against individual contacts and so forth? All of that gives you a lot of data to play with to be able to customize, hey, here's my dashboard. Here's the bar that I need to set as you must meet this bar and see who comes on top of it and who goes below. And week over week, use that as the way to coach someone. Because And, and by the way, the most important thing here to note is if you're going to have a dashboard, share it with your team. Like as obvious as that sounds, I think I've seen, you know, peer managers or I've seen people that manage me above line, right? Not share the data they're actually using to evaluate you on a QBR or evaluate you on a performance review. You can't expect them people to respond well to it or know what to do with it. Like it has to be dashboard that they could reference on a daily basis because habits and performance record gets built on a daily basis. It doesn't get built quarterly, especially if the reps are relatively new in their career or new to sales, building the muscles for understanding why this is good for their themselves and their ability to hit quota and, and their careers and, becoming more savvy sales professionals, I think um, you got to instill it on a daily basis. And the only way you instill it is use the dashboard that you're going to roll up in your you know, quarterly review with your C- C-suite or your board and literally show, here's where you are. Here's where the six other people on our team is. Here's what I told you as the baseline that all of us need to meet. meet. Now let's take a look at what you're doing that might be different than this person. And like, it doesn't even have to be that heavy handed. I think once you build a culture of friendly competition, but we survive as collaborators, I think you will find the natural dynamics of almost like uh, knowledge osmosis, right? People that are especially, you know, career driven, ambitious, but also very, they, they, they get their energy from influencing other people. They will organically find the opportunities to help. And those that understand that there is competition, but also collaboration on the, this team will feel good about reaching out and not feel like they are less than for reaching out and literally mention this at every one-on-one. Like it just becomes part of what builds into their motivation for the week. Like there's some sense of, shoot, you know, so-and-so who started two weeks before me is crushing me week over week on pipeline generation. I wonder what that person's doing different. Like you got to have them, the reps, be able to ask that question when they start their Mondays, right? Because otherwise it's going to be just another ask on the list of asks that my manager is going to ask me in my one-on-one. And it just becomes a, a road boring thing. 
it sounds like your set of components to a successful relationship between an individual contributor, whether new or existing, and a frontline manager in slash the organization is based off of a series of organizational metrics, largely top of the funnel, e.g. pipeline creation and conversion rates throughout, and visibility across the team about your performance so that, and this is a little bit of an assumption, you didn't say this explicitly, so that there is uh, an opportunity for individuals to see exactly what the manager is so that there's not a misalignment and two separate sets of reports and a manager might not, a manager then is not in a position where they might accidentally calculate the wrong thing because sometimes frontline managers, and, and I shouldn't just say frontline managers, but people can, with the best of intentions, cross data sets and get the wrong answer. So you absolve the, the individual and manager of perhaps being misaligned or uh, by, by allowing them to look at the same thing and then hearkening back to what you've said earlier on with a sound relationship of support between them, you allow the individual, especially if prompted to be asking a small number of questions on a daily or weekly basis when it comes to sort of probably weekly basis at, at the f- most frequent when it comes to their performance, you allow them when at, saying like, hey, here are the three questions you should be answering to self-analyze, right? To then be more interested in um, and how to help themselves, uh, which is a much, this, what you've laid out is a sound and relatively simplistic process, but impossible for young early organizations, sorry, not young early organizations, but it is impossible for organizations that do not have an experienced person like you, Chris, who has successfully multiple times done this because you're left with uh, people who are almost practicing it for the first time and they're likely to make the wrong decision unless they have that guiding hand that you have. Yeah, (laughs) a lot more eloquent than I put it, but yes, absolutely. It's only easy for me to say it, Chris, because I just got to hear you you know, work hard to explain it, you know, and I got to listen and go, okay, how would I summarize that? <laughs> yeah. No, I have a tendency to ramble and storytell too much. I think yours was the perfect summary. Well, you know, it's, I don't, yes. <laughs> yes. However, the stories that you weave in, that's what people actually <laughs> listen to. How do you think this, does this trick, mm, when it comes to the element of forecasting, um, uh, How have you seen the explanation of how business, general business is operate or the fundamental basis of creating a strong relationship or the uh, uh, providing visibility and transparency into a certain few key metrics? How and if does that trickle down into their mind and how they're uh, improving their ability to forecast? Or do you see forecasting as a wholly separate thing, wholly, you know, like different in terms of its level of importance, uh, different in terms of how they improve in that area. Mm. Hmm. Cause I've seen it as you're thinking and, and certainly 
this might not be something that makes the cut, but as you're thinking, some organizations don't ask the individual contributor to get better, right? There is an overlaying analysis mm, I see. that covers them and doesn't ask of them to improve. And then some organizations ask them to forecast every week. And then they tell them at some point that they are, you know, how their forecast compares to their actuals. And it's sort of left out in the ether of whether or not they should work better or hard, not better. That's the wrong way, but work differently to forecast. So supporting them in the forecasting process, I've seen it uh, one of three ways. One, uh, don't worry. Uh, we're going to forecast around you. Two, you got to get better at forecasting. Or three, you got to get better at forecasting and here's here's how. Yeah, no, excellent question. And, you know, I think it's because I've only been exposed to companies where we were really, really high growth, but be, be able to roll up a forecast that's super high fidelity that I, I've had built this obsession over forecast without realizing that not every place does it the same. For me, forecast is a way for the team to get together once a week where, and by the way, like I realized not every team forecasts as a group. I personally don't take well to teams that try to forecast where it's basically a readout of every single opportunity and you go around the room for an hour or longer to do that. For me, it's it's a couple of things I'm looking at. Like, And this is, I guess, the most recent revolution is based on, because we're at Twilio, I'm working on a... I have responsibilities over a team that's responsible for 1,800 accounts and a couple hundred million in terms of territory revenue that's managed. So we don't have the luxury of rolling up a number opportunity by opportunity, or I don't, I can't forecast the whole thing myself, right? And so the the model I've lived in and where I emphasize this is your forecast is important because down the line indirectly so it affects our earnings calls to the street and that has you know indirect implications on the value of your stock price so this is important so do it right and our ability to forecast is just as important as the ability to hit our numbers and exceed our numbers so like that is pretty ingrained i would say throughout the majority of the team where it's not pulling teeth kind of emotion. People bring with themselves a sense of seriousness. And this is a ritual weekly, right? And we make it a 30 minute blast. You know, we, we do a couple of fun things or trying to talk more in casually for the 20 minutes before. So we have now I've moved to a model where, you know, whereas before I might've had a longer forecast, I've moved to a model once a week, we reach ritual, we go through, you know, regular items, first 20 minutes, and then 30 minutes, super focused, 11 people go. And what I'm looking for is based on your historicals of your risk profile, right? Are you someone who is extremely conservative on forecast and just look at what's bottom up versus people that take more of a top-down approach? And the CEO that I work with back at Tempo, she really challenged me. I mean, and she was an engineer by training too. She really challenged me to think in terms of, Chris, there's the bottom up and then there is the bogeys that you know is going to happen by the virtue of the historicals on how this might happen or the best cases that you're really not anticipating. But 
it, it's what she was actually saying was this is more of a how an, an executive would overlay to your point, Doug, on top of reps, right? Really made a focus to get reps to do that and not just me. So what she was interested in is um, ability for reps to see that themselves, not just, hey, this is what the reps called. And, you know, Chris, to call, you know, two million dollars over the reps. So that's going to be our forecast. Instead of that, let's instill that in the reps themselves and have them understand why that's important for the piece of the company, because all the companies I've worked at, uh, employees get stock options, how they understand that they are taking piece of what their valuation could potentially be based on, right? So for me, like, that's that's how I run forecasts. And, and I think once you exhibit that, once you exhibit, like, here's why it's important. Uh, that's the other thing. I think for a lot of organizations I've indirectly seen, forecasting is just something you do. And there's a sense of monotony that's associated with how people view it. And I think I might be like overly obsessed with it. But to me, this is part of the performance, like part of your performance as a sales manager, part of your performance as a rep that might be interested in a sales leadership track, you know, soon is to understand that part of performance as you go up in your career is being able to call a number you're not 100% comfortable with. And being able to walk through all the risks, all the levers we could pull, be able to quantify that to a certain extent without it being just a bottom up of what's in the pipeline. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think you asked a really interesting and a complex question. That's my reaction to it. Yeah, I think, I mean, honestly, like the the, the whole topic of forecasting, too, it's like there's... Uh, it is complex, right? And so, I, you know, it was great to kind of get your perspective on it and how you've done it in a couple different, um, you know, organizations and, and really kind of share your learnings from it. Because, um, you know, I, I've always thought that it's like, it, the more you pick the brain of people that, you know, have been there and done it, um, the more you can kind of learn and get better at it yourself. And it was interesting to hear you, how you, how you kind of think of it uh, at a place like Twilio, which may be a little bit different, right? Than, uh, than you would at somewhere else, especially when you're talking about the sheer volume of, uh, of, of deals that you're probably interacting with. So, you know, that was interesting. Um, well, I want to do something real quick. I want to share a couple of quick takeaways and then, uh, shortly I'm going to, I'm going to let you get out of here, Chris, I'm going to keep, keep my word and let you get out of here to, at a reasonable time. But, um, you know, something that, that you mentioned earlier that really, really kind of stuck me out that was really, uh, really prescient, which was, sharing dashboards with your team that you're looking at. Right. I think that was something that I, uh, I think it just, it really kind of stuck with me and resonated with me. Um, and, and not that I haven't done that in the past, but I think that's just an important thing that people can, can really learn from and do. Like you said, I think you said it something along the lines of just like, you know, you, you, they should be aware of what is getting sort of reported up. Right. And, and allow them to, uh, to model their behavior, um, thusly. So I think that was, that was one thing that really stuck with me that I wanted to, I wanted to share as a, or point out as a takeaway. And the other thing is, you know, I, I think you're probably one of the first people who've really said it this way is just the importance of kind of like, you know, uh, of really emphasizing, um, you know, business knowledge, you know, business acumen as just, you know, kind of one of the fundamental aspects of how you, you know, train and coach, uh, and how important that is, uh, for, for reps. Um, you know, and, and Doug, your point too, of just kind of like even how to, how to give an executive summary that provides like a really, uh, like a, just a, a more concrete takeaway, 
um, for people that are listening of, okay, let's, let's start there. Right. Because I mean, frankly, I've had a lot of reps, uh, excuse me, heads of sales that have said, yeah, you know, we really gotta, our team's gotta get better. They, they gotta have better business acumen. Right. But that's a very broad statement. And, um, and without, you know, much follow-up on it, you don't really know how to get them better at it. Right. But something like, you know, providing executive summaries or, you know, the way in which an executive might want to hear certain reporting is, is that sort of thing is it can be handled in bite-sized chunks. So, uh, the importance of that, I think is, is really paramount. So those are, those are two takeaways that I had. Doug, did anything from your side that I might have missed? Well, let me just process the, the experience that Chris has had at, uh, let's just say, the first two places as he led sales were so distinct and different, the environments. Um, uh, Second one, manufacturing, engineering, designers, electrical engineers, and perhaps Mm -hmm. manufacturing. And the first one, uh, a platform for mental health uh, and, and safeguarding and recognizing that for individuals and the employers of those individuals and connecting them with a sort of solution there, there are different challenges and problems, but the success that Chris had played itself out as we talked. It is the recognition that there is a, a level, as you talked about Tim, the second one, a level of um, business acumen is for me, the understanding of the other person's, uniquenesses of their business and how they make decisions on using capital and communicating on statuses of projects. And that just can't happen uh, out of the gate for someone new into sales. It only can happen if they have an interest in and then exposure to that. So for those listening, Chris's success uh, in part is based off of that interest in and understanding of business acumen. And so I think that's the, the one big thing the parallels that sits through all of this is that piece, which is clear uh, to me. And that's the one thing I would urge those who's listening is to yearn and stretch for someone in their organization or, um, you know, or, or, or sources of information online that they can get that and obtain that because outside of selling and outside of being in, in businesses and, and working with employers, it's just, it's fun if you are a curious person, which oftentimes salespeople can be, it's fun yeah. to then have that when you're sitting next to someone at a steak restaurant or a bar or what vegan restaurant, I don't care where you are, or playing golf or playing tennis, because you can have more interest in something that's uh, uh, really important for them and how they communicate. Absolutely. And I, and I think it's just one thing to add as, as we're kind of like wrapping up here, I think we make it sound more difficult by making it abstract, right? Like a exact summary, account planning, like, you know, like, you know, mutually agreed upon plan, like at the end of the day, like what are the questions you need to ask? If you are an investigative journalist for wall street journal, that's doing a deep dive into this company, like, or you're trying to decide, like someone gave you a million dollars and you're deciding whether or not to invest in this company, do you understand how they make money? Do you understand what kind of operations they need to have to make that kind of money? If you were in their shoes, would you try to grow this company right now at all costs with, you know, uh, lower margins or would you try to uh, sacrifice margins or would you try to optimize this to be more of an efficient company from a net income perspective? Like all the questions are 
simple questions, really, if you think about it, right? I think we make it harder by telling reps, hey, I need to see a better executive summary. And it feels like something that has to be, you know, extremely formatted, extremely followed through from a, hey, this, these are the three things I want to see for things. And I, and I think at some point, there's some level of tacticalities that need to be captured uh, from like an expectation perspective and the format that needs to be done in. But I think for reps that are struggling to even understand and wrap their minds around it, have them understand like it's no different than if you were an investigative journalist working for Wall Street Journal. It's no different than you're on the golf course with someone who you just found out while golfing, like, holy crap, that's the CEO of so-and-so company. And, but you're a little bit buzzed. So you're, you're more free to like ask questions and you're really curious what they do for a living, how they make money. Like it's no different than that level of curiosity, but wrapping it around in a format of discovery call, wrapping it around in the form of, I need to be able to come up with a plan that could articulate clearly how I think about the opportunities here with this business and how we're going to capture it. So it's like putting a wrapper around it, but I think we get so focused on the wrapper and the format of the wrapper that we forget at the heart of it is basic questions that you would ask in an environment where you are personally motivated financially or otherwise to understand how that business operates. Yep. It doesn't need to be that hard, right? Yeah. Just simplify it. Don't overthink it. Yeah. it's It's a great point to end on before, before I let you get out of here, Chris, where can people find your best way to best way to find you is on LinkedIn. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, like I want to be better about having a more of a public facing conduit through which people could connect with me about this and otherwise, but yeah, for now, LinkedIn. Great. Well, awesome, man. We really appreciate you coming on today. This is uh, really informative and I love to hear your perspective on this and, uh, you know, just hearing you kind of, you know, scale these different companies and, and share these learnings with, with folks that, uh, that are listening to this podcast was, was really great. So we really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on, coming on today, Chris. Thanks. Thanks for having me here, Tim and Doug. Pleasure speaking with you both. Good. All right. Thanks guys. 